Romans chapter 5, and we'll find that on page 1132 in the Bibles in the pews. That's Romans chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 to 11. checking we've got the right pages. Uh, Chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. on the first page of your Bible, which is actually page 3. Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 24. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit will seed in, with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thank you very much, uh, Lynn, for reading for us. Uh, should we pray? Um, long evening already. Um, see if God will help us to stay alert. Uh, Father God, we pray for your help um, in thinking again in, in delicate territory. Please help us uh, to do so well, wisely, um, and in ways that will um, help us to, to honor you uh, and live uh, for your greater glory. Amen. If you have been following this series through, then you know that we're doing something slightly unusual um, three, three talks around the idea of the image of God. Uh, week one uh, was where we, we, we put a lot of the, uh, of the Bible and a lot of the sort of the theological thinking in to that first week. Um, and then uh, we moved into the second week where we, we tried to think about how we applied that thinking to the beginning of life. So what we'd seen was that the image of God... Uh, is not an, an attribute that we can have more or less of, so that some people have more of the image of God, some people less, uh, some people uh, qualify in some way, some people don't. But the, the image of God is something intrinsic uh, to being a human. Um, uh, and then we applied that to, to, to the beginning of life, particularly abortion. This week, we're going to go to the other end of life, as it were, um, and uh, uh, do the same kind of thinking, uh, how does what the Bible has to say about us being made in the image of God apply to the end of life? And particularly, we're going to think about euthanasia. I've got two ambitions tonight. One is not to be as long as last week. Um, well done if you endured that marathon. Um, I'm going to determine not to be as long as that. Uh, the second is I want to try and provide something of a sort of plausible um, apologetic, if you like, um, on this topic. And, and I fear I didn't do that as well as I could have done last week. And maybe if we do do a bit of question time later on, you can pick me up on that. Because it seems to me that to say, um, look, look, here's the way that the world is thinking at the moment uh, on some of these issues. Um, but the Bible says this isn't of huge help to you if you're in conversation um, with people who don't see the Bible as, you know, of interest, but it's not, it's not authoritative. So you've got to say a little bit more than that, haven't you, in, in, in conversation with, with friends maybe who don't take a Christian perspective on these things. And I want to try and help you with that. What that means is that a lot of tonight will be, um, uh, will do quite a bit before we get to some Bible passages, okay? Um, and that's the reason why I'm trying to offer you ways of thinking about this topic that will help us in conversation with people um, even before we arrive at, at sort of landing, ah, but the Christian says this, okay? And I hope you'll see that that makes sense. Um, let me begin uh, then um, to try and sort of get our, get our heads into where we are in this territory with two uh, real-life examples. 
Uh, Diane Pretty uh, was diagnosed with motor neuron disease in 1999 uh, when she was 40 years old. Uh, Within two years of the diagnosis, she was paralyzed from the neck down and being fed uh, with a tube. Uh, What she really wanted to know uh, was that when the suffering got too much for her, she would be able to bring her life uh, to an end. But because by that point she was paralyzed, uh, bringing her life to an end would involve somebody else. So in a well-publicized legal case, uh, she sought assurance from the courts that if her husband did help her to take her own life, he would not be prosecuted for assisting a suicide, which in the UK is a criminal offense. Uh, The case went all the way to the European Court of Human Rights, uh, but ultimately the ruling went against her. In May 2002, uh, Diane Pretty uh, developed breathing difficulties, was admitted to a hospice, passed into a coma, and died soon afterwards. After her death, her husband expressed his frustration. Diane had to go through the one thing she had foreseen and was afraid of, and there was nothing I could do to help. Why shouldn't Diane Prissy have had the right to choose, to decide when her suffering was too much and bring it to an end? Or how about, uh, I don't know how you pronounce this, I've never heard this uh, name said, Tien Niz, uh, uh, is someone who's Dutch, uh, might know uh, the right pronunciation of that, forgive me if I got it wrong. Um, uh, She, uh, in 2009, she approached her doctors uh, to ask for euthanasia, uh, which is legal um, in, um, I know I'm confused whether she was in Belgium, I think she was in Belgium, I I think she's, she's Belgian, not, uh, not, not Netherlands, beg your pardon, um, uh, in Belgium. Um, her doctors confirmed that she fulfilled the requirements under um, Belgian law. She was of sound mind. She wasn't suffering any external pressure uh, upon her for a decision. Uh, she was enduring uh, unbearable suffering. Her desire to die was longstanding. Uh, in fact, she had uh, made several attempts on her own life. And so in 2010, in the presence of her close family, uh, her life was ended by lethal injection. Uh, She was 38 years old. Now, isn't that how it should be? If her mind was made up, then surely she has a right for her wish to be fulfilled. Most people in the UK agree with the sentiments that I've just expressed. In surveys, 80 to 90% of people believe the law should be changed to allow assisted dying. Now, interestingly, the numbers in those surveys shift when you begin to introduce some of the things that we're going to think about next. Suddenly, people aren't quite so sure as they see that things aren't quite as straightforward as they first thought. But but understand that that's where we begin from uh, in terms of public opinion uh, in the UK at the moment. Let's begin to clarify some terms. Uh, Euthanasia, um, which literally means good death, is best understood as intentional mercy killing, deliberately bringing someone's life to an end because it is felt that their life is not worth living. Now, that might be that they think that their life isn't worth living, but it could also be that somebody else thinks that their life is not worth living. 
Hence, euthanasia could be voluntary, uh, somebody chooses it, or it could be involuntary, somebody else chooses it for them. A different term uh, that we need to understand, um, actually no, before I say that, um, understand that euthanasia needs to be distinguished uh, from the withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment uh, because you decide that uh, the treatment that you're giving is no longer being effective or the, the giving of it is so burdensome uh, that you take the decision to withdraw it. Uh, from, uh, from a patient. Uh, you can see the difference. That there isn't the intention to kill there. Uh, there is the withdrawing of something that is sustaining life because you decide that uh, the point has reached where that's the right thing to do. Uh, those two things need to be distinguished. Uh, as does the decision to give somebody some symptom-relieving treatment, even though you know that giving them this symptom-relieving treatment may have uh, the additional effect of shortening their life expectancy. Now, that too is a different thing. Your attention, again, is not to kill. Your attention is to alleviate symptoms, uh, and you do so even knowing that that may have a reduction in life expectancy. That's a different thing. You can see that. Another in term that we need to understand is um, a physician-assisted suicide. Um, uh, here's a, this, this refers to a doctor helping a person to end their life. The Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland that we've all heard about, been in the, in the press many times over recent years. Um, uh, that clinic operates on this basis. So euthanasia is not legal in Switzerland, but assisted suicide is. Uh, doctors supply uh, generally a, a very large dose of barbiturates, uh, but it's the patient who takes the barbiturates. Um, another term that, that you hear used is assisted dying. Um, and it, worth you knowing that, that some people within the, who work within palliative care um, push back at, uh, at the use of the phrase assisted dying because they feel that that's kind of what, what we seek to do in palliative care. We seek to, to, to assist people, to support people um, as they are dying. Um, um, but when it is used by people who are campaigning, um, such as the Dignity in Dying um, uh, campaigning group, um, what they mean um, by assisted dying really is the same thing as physician-assisted suicide. The ethics um, here are, are kind of, in a sense, much debated. Um, some ask if ethically there really is any difference between a doctor supplying the means um, uh, and a doctor performing the act. Um, so in one, the doctor sets up the infusion, perhaps, uh, of lethal drugs, um, but then leaves it to the patient to, uh, to press the button um, or to take the tablets. Um, is there really any difference ethically from the doctor who sets up the infusion and presses the button? Um, some would ask, is there really any difference ethically between those two? Um, consider also um, that in physician-assisted suicide, um, when the doctor is supplying the means but not actually performing the act, um, in 
in one study, um, in 18% of um, cases, um, the, uh, the assisted suicide um, didn't go as intended. Um, and so the, the killing of the person was not successful, um, such that at that point the physician needed to step in um, and do something additional um, to ensure that the person did die um, and didn't wake up still alive. So again, that, that sort of shows you how it begins to blur um, between something that is physician-assisted and something that the physician is, is, is needing to do uh, actively themselves. Um, and you wonder how much you can tease apart those things ethically. So that's what's meant uh, by these terms, physician-assisted suicide uh, and euthanasia. Um, where and to what degree are these things happening? Well, euthanasia and or physician-assisted suicide is uh, now legal in a number of uh, countries uh, across the world. That includes the Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland, Canada... Um, six, uh, to, to my best of my knowledge, six American states uh, at the moment. Um, in the Netherlands, uh, uh, about 6,500 deaths per year um, uh, happen because of euthanasia. Um, that's about 4% of all deaths um, in the Netherlands at the moment. Um, it's a threefold increase since 2002. Uh, you get a sense of, of the increase. Uh, in in this, um, in Belgium, is that my next slide? If I'm, no, in Switzerland, um, where, as I said, uh, euthanasia is not legal, but assisted suicide is. There's been a fourfold increase um, in the number of people dying by assisted suicide. Um, and uh, again, I've seen various figures, but uh, I've seen one suggesting one person every two weeks. Uh, another one every three weeks. Uh, that sort of number of people travelling from the UK uh, to the Dignitas Clinic uh, to end their lives. So you get an idea of, of the scale of how much this is happening. How should we respond um, to, to, to this, these events in our culture? Uh, for some, this would be a cause for celebration. Um, people are managing to obtain um, the thing that they want. Um, and it would be a good thing uh, that our society is, uh, is enabling people to, to, to be able to choose in this area. Uh, for others, of course, uh, this is a deep and profound concern because human life is in some way being devalued uh, by these events. Well, what do you think and why? Are, are you clear enough to be able to engage in conversation and debate with somebody um, and have feel as though you've got something to say. Uh, in a sense, that's what I want to try and help you to, to have this evening, um, just by thinking a bit about the two main arguments in favour uh, of euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide and then some of the pushback against them. Okay? I'm going quickly and um, it's, you know, inevitably I'm giving you a, a sort of a shape of a lie of the land uh, rather than detail. Um, argument one uh, is that is, is the argument from compassion. Um, here's the, um, the fashion designer, Jasper Conran. It seems extraordinary to me that as a nation we operate on a double standard. If our pets are hopelessly ill, 
uh, we have the oh, we have the M. We have the me- we have the means. Why have I got a typo there? We have them. Oh, that's a space where it shouldn't be. Thank you, San Young. Yes, indeed, we have the M. We have them put down to save them or the M uh, from pain, and we call that humane. If, however, our nearest and dearest are terminally ill and writhing in an agony that drugs cannot help anymore, we allow the law to insist that we do nothing. Um, The argument from compassion, you know, the awfulness of seeing somebody writhing in agony, um, is a powerful one. You feel the the thrust of it. Um, It has strong proponents. Um, In a sense, the former Archbishop um, George Carey Um, has indicated his thinking um, is falling in line with this, and it's a shift for him. How do we respond? Uh, Well, I think the first thing would be to say um, that that we mustn't uh, forget or overlook um, the enormous skill and quality of the palliative care that is available to us, um, and how very, very rare it would be uh, for somebody uh, to be in um, in the terminal phases of their life um, and not have their pain under control. Um, uh, we have developed the ability to be able to do that. Um, and it would be unfair to suggest that um, a very painful death is a, is a frequent thing um, in, uh, in our medical uh, quality at the moment. But, but perhaps more significantly um, is uh, to, to think where this argument from compassion kind of leads, what the direction it takes. For once we decide um, that compassion allows the alleviation of suffering by ending someone's life, you've got to say, why limit this to terminal illness? Why not include chronic illness as well? Or why not include psychological struggles? Once you have decided that that it is a compassionate thing to relieve suffering, that's a good, you've you've made that ethical step, then what are your grounds for saying it's only terminal illness that that merits that? Um, Why not? Mental distress can be awful. Uh, As a a former psychiatrist, I've, I've sat with people with the agonies of mental distress. It's a terrible thing. Why would we not want to say, well, let's alleviate that suffering as well? And that argument has begun to prevail. Um, I told you about teen knees earlier on. Um, I didn't tell you the whole story. I mentioned she was 38. What I didn't tell you was that she'd been suffering from depression for many years, uh, that she'd become addicted to heroin, and had recently been diagnosed with autism. Her request for euthanasia was based on her psychological suffering. And the reason that she's been in the news recently um, is because after 10 years of trying, her family, who were present at her death, her family um, took the doctors to court because they felt that she had not been given sufficient advice nor had she been sufficiently treated for her psychological struggles. Uh, And that the assisted 
no, sorry, that the euthanasia that was performed uh, was done in a clumsy and unprofessional way. Uh, the court case was settled last week. Uh, the doctors were acquitted. Many worry that there's a slippery slope here. That once we decide that there is such a thing as a life not worth living, we have let the proverbial cat out of the bag. And we simply cannot control where society will take that thinking next. It's a frightening idea that already um, in Belgium uh, it is possible uh, to ask for your life to be ended uh, because you are experiencing profound depression uh, and to be granted that request. Again, as a former psychiatrist, I find that deeply disturbing. And while we need to avoid crass comparisons, um, they say you know, if, you, if you don't know your history, you're destined to repeat it. Well, long before uh, Nazi death camps killed millions of Jewish people, the German medical profession had become persuaded that euthanasia was a reasonable approach. Way back in 1920, uh, a professor of medicine and a professor of law together published a book, uh, the title of which was Release and Destruction of Lives Not Worth Living. Uh, and these two men believed that the, the right to life needed to be earned and not assumed. And in their view, many of those people who were at that time filling the mental institutions of Germany, in their view, many of them were candidates for involuntary euthanasia. Uh, and partly because of that thinking that was bubbling up through the 20s and into the 30s, by the time uh, we got to 1935 in Germany, a substantial euthanasia program had already been established uh, for people with those kinds of disabilities. As a result, um, uh, the 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 territory was set, I suppose, or, or the mindset existed um, that made it possible to imagine the sort of brutality and the horrors of the Holocaust. After the Nuremberg War Trials, um, a psychiatrist uh, by the name of, oh, it's up on the screen, tell me about it, Leo Alexander, um, he wrote a, an influential paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, and it contained these words. It started with the acceptance by doctors of the idea, basic in the euthanasia movement, that there is such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. This attitude in the beginning referred to the severely and chronically sick. Gradually, the sphere of those to be included was enlarged uh, to encompass the socially unproductive, the ideologically unwanted, the racially unwanted. But it is important to realize that the infinitely small lever from which this entire trend of mind received its impetus was the attitude towards the incurably sick. You need to see that if, if, the, if the belief in compassion isn't constrained by a belief in the dignity of every human life, it leads in very dangerous uh, and dark directions. 
So first, uh, uh, the argument for compassion and some pushback against it. Second, uh, the argument from personal right or autonomy, um, which is uh, the, the strong argument that comes out of the Dignity with Dying um, pressure group. Um, give me choice over my death. Um, who are you to say um, how, I should, uh, how I should or shouldn't be allowed to bring my life to an end? Uh, there's a famous play uh, about a quadriplegic man um, who wants uh, to bring his life to an end. I remember seeing it, actually, in the, in the West End back in the 1970s. Um, and uh, it was astonishing. Tom Conti, if you remember him, um, uh, was the actor. And how he managed to command uh, the stage um, when the entire time, for the entire duration of the play, he was just lying in a bed, and all you could see was that much of him. Uh, it, was a, it was a performance like nothing else. Um, the, the ability um, to, to, to uh, command the stage um, in that way was magnificent. Anyway, the title of the play was Whose Life Is It Anyway? And the implication was that, you know, whose life is this? It's my life. I can decide. I must be allowed to decide. How can you stop me from being able to decide when my life comes to an end? Um, I ought to be able, you ought to give me the ability to be able to make that choice. Uh, and that is what Dignity um, in Dying believes. Uh, here are a few quotes uh, from their website. Assisted dying allows a dying person the choice to control their death if they decide their suffering is unbearable. It is illegal in the UK. Forcing people to travel aboard and pay thousands of pounds for a dignified death is cruel and wrong. Sounds persuasive. Uh, again, um, only a very quick survey. Let me suggest some of the ways that we might push back uh, against this thinking. Uh, it seems to me that uh, a person ending their life isn't just about the impact on them. Uh, the implication and the impact is much wider. At first, there's an impact on family. It's complex, isn't it? What happens when somebody close to you and your family were to say, I want my life to end. You need to help me. Because at one level, you think, well, well, loving this person means giving them what they want. And the implication is, if you won't help me to die, you don't really love me. But, but there are other messages going on as well, aren't they? Um, like, listen, when I weigh how much I want to go on being with you in this world versus how much I want to be out of my suffering, it's the suffering that wins. So I'm choosing to leave you. Now, a, a person who is asking um, to be killed wouldn't say those words out loud. But you can see that the implication is nevertheless there in the decision to ask to be killed. And that has complicated impact upon those close to somebody taking that decision. You can see that, can't you? Uh, and then, what if some of the family disagree or have misgivings about the whole thing? Are they able to say how difficult to resist your close relative at the point where they are making this demand upon you? What if long after the person has died, one child blames another for letting their mother take this decision and they think they shouldn't have done it? 
Uh, think of the impact that that leaves behind uh, on family dynamics. It's never just me that is affected by my decision to die. Or what about the flow in the other direction? Uh, one um, Washington study uh, showed that 61% of those choosing assisted suicide did so because they felt that they'd become a burden to their family. It's possible, isn't it, that the person choosing to die feels as though they, they should do that. And if that's what they're thinking, then where's the autonomy in that? Second, consider the effect on the doctor-patient relationship. Once physician-assisted suicide is accepted, what happens to trust between patient and doctor? So, so I, do I lie in my bed, starting to wonder if my doctor thinks I should end it all? Are they advising me in the way that they are? Are they talking to me about my illness? Because actually they think that it's best for me to bring my life to an end. Or are they only saying that because they need the bed? Or because they think it would be cheaper? And the NHS needs to save some money? Now, even if those things are completely ridiculous, you can still imagine thinking them in the fog of terminal illness when none of us are going to be thinking terribly clearly. And what a terrible thing to have that kind of suspicion introduced to the doctor-patient relationship. Third, think about the impact on society as a whole. Uh, here are some words um, from Baroness Warnock. If you're demented, you're wasting people's lives, your family's lives, and you're wasting the resources of the National Health Service. If somebody absolutely desperately wants to die because they're a burden to their family or the state, then I think that they too should be allowed to die. Now, if that kind of attitude begins to pervade our culture, it's very hard for someone with early-onset dementia not to feel an implicit pressure to do the right thing. So that the right to die morphs and becomes the duty to die. My choice isn't just about me. Uh, it affects uh, uh, the society of which I am a part. Now, I promised that um, uh, as well as what basically... If, all of those have really been, been secular arguments. Now, I've just argued from logic so far. Um, uh, let me just finish off uh, briefly with a couple of Christian responses. Uh, first, uh, the idea of good suffering. The Bible's not short, is it, of people who, who wanted to, their lives to come to an end, uh, who found themselves in such a state that they thought, I can't go on. You think of Elijah, he got there, didn't he? Um, you think of Jonah, he uh, wanted God to kill him. You think of Job, um, he several times uh, wished he'd never been born. But the Bible is also clear um, how suffering uh, is very often used by God to bring dramatic and life-transforming change. Um, so, uh, terribly briefly, just remember the verses that we saw in Romans 5, where Paul writes, We also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, 
and character hope. In the Bible's worldview, suffering is not purposeless. It's not without effect for good. And we do something very strange as a society if we conclude that the only thing to be done with suffering is to get rid of it. That's the only mindset we've got. All that we can see about suffering is that that it's bad. And we can't see ever that good could come out of suffering. Uh, Then we've arrived in, in 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 a very dangerous place, it seems to me. That suffering was even good for Jesus. Remember these extraordinary words in Hebrews 2? How God chose to make Jesus, the pioneer of our, suf- of our salvation, perfect through what he suffered. And if suffering can somehow make Jesus perfect, I've got time to explain what lies behind that notion, um, then we shouldn't be quite so negative about the experience of suffering ourselves. And of course, most centrally of all, suffering is the very basis of Christian salvation. Jesus told his disciples the Son of Man must suffer and be killed and rise again. If there's no suffering, there is no salvation. So a Christian worldview, more perhaps than any other worldview there has ever been and ever will be, has a reason to see good in suffering. And that, therefore, finding ways to hurry on past our suffering may may not actually improve our lives, it may actually impoverish them if our only mindset in response to suffering is somehow to to whoosh it away, um, run past it in some way or other, rather than to find a way of engaging with it. Second, uh, as well as thinking about good suffering, I think we need also to think about uh, a good death. Um, Today, uh, generally what people um, seem to most want is a quick death. He just dropped down dead. Didn't know a thing about it, lucky beggar. Hope I go like that. That's the kind of of, phrase that you hear people say, wouldn't it? Now, our forebears took exactly the opposite point of view. Our forebears thought that was a a really bad way to die. Because to die suddenly like that gave you no time to prepare, no time to to, to do finishing business in relationship to the people that you care about most. A quick death uh, was a difficult thing in generations past. And I have to say that in my own experience, my, my work as a doctor, uh, and actually much more so as a pastor, uh, has given me the privilege of being involved uh, with a number of people uh, as they have approached uh, the end of their lives. And again and again, I look back on precious time uh, in the run-up to somebody's death. Um, not, not many of you will um, uh, remember Andy Drain. Uh, some of you will. He was part of the church family here uh, when we uh, when we when I arrived here um, with with a group of others back uh, in two thousand and four, he died of of leukemia in his mid thirties. There was lots of tragedy in his death, death and lots of heartache. Left his wife Ruth uh, without a husband, three young children without a father. 
Uh, but there was much that was magnificent about the way that he and Ruth faced those final years. Uh, the sermons he preached, the faith that he and Ruth demonstrated, and the inspiration that she still is. Um, he wrote this book, um, which includes the sermons that he preached on Job uh, in the final year or so of his life, uh, and his own reflections on the experience of dying. Uh, I think, too, um, about uh, my own mum, who died just over two years ago. In her latter years, she died in her 90s, in her latter years, she often told me that she was ready to go. Uh, she also often told me how she hated being a burden uh, to, uh, to me and to my brothers, uh, and how she wished I didn't have to keep driving up and down the M11 uh, to care for her and my dad uh, in their declining years. I think if euthanasia had been a thing here, I can well imagine her feeling a considerable pressure uh, to have it. And yet, those final years were some of the most precious. As the people who had looked after me when I was a helpless child became the people that I looked after in their increasing helplessness. There was something rich and good and right about that. Something life-affirming. Something valuable and precious. That I was able to love them in those particular ways and talk with them and be with them in a way that will be precious to me forever. And I think the things that they were able to say in those declining years uh, to me and to my brothers, I think those were precious to them as well. Uh, we began this series by thinking about the image of God, and I want to end there too. The Bible's teaching is that every single one of us has purpose and dignity and value because God made us in his image. Uh, and what that means is that... that this applies to us whether, whether we're very young or very old, uh, whether we are, have already been born or whether we are the unborn. It applies uh, whether we're black or white, whether we're male or female, whether we have the normal range of abilities or whether we are in some way disabled. It applies to us whether we are high-flying and intellectually brilliant or whether we live with profound intellectual impairment. It says that every single one of us is made in the image of God, and every single one of us therefore merits the dignity and the protection uh, that we ascribe to any one of us. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, who always puts things well, puts it like this. People are equal in the same way that pennies are equal. Some are bright and others are dull. Some are worn smooth, others are sharp and fresh. But all are equal in value, for each penny bears the image of the sovereign. Each person bears the image of the king of kings. And it's him, the Bible tells us, who has the right to determine the length of our days. And it just seems to me that it, it, it's this absolute truth 
this external given truth that has the ability, and, and it's only this that has the ability to interrupt our kind of utilitarian ethic, that, that interrupts the sliding scale, uh, which we see in relation to abortion, which we see in relation to euthanasia, that, that gradually chips off more and more. Because there's no logic to interrupt unless you pull back to this fundamental and to say there is a givenness to human life and that givenness is that, is that we are given the image of our creator and that's what dignifies us and that's what we need to affirm. I hope that helps. Um, it's, there's so much um, that we could say. There's loads of things I've not touched on in, in relation to this topic as to last week's. Um, David, what are we doing now? Are we going to sing a song at the end? Um, so um, we, we've said that we'd make some time for questions and answers. You've been very patient and, and you've, you've endured lots already. Um, I think what we'll do is this. When we're done uh, after a final song and, and David finishes off for us, um, we'll, we'll take a bit of a break um, and there'll, there'll be some drinks at the back. There, there are some bits of paper if you want to scribble down some questions. Um, and I'm imagining a, a pretty small number um, might want to, to come and, and just have a bit of to and fro. Um, and we'll do that at the front, um, allowing the rest of you to, um, to slide away, enjoy your evening, um, and not endure any more um, from me. Shall I pray? Um, Father God, we, um, we, we thought about... Uh, uh, hard things to think about, hard things to talk about, but we see and we feel the urgency of doing so um, because of uh, because w- what is happening uh, around us in, in our culture. Um, and we need to try and think clearly um, and bravely um, and honestly, um, uh, knowing that um, the things we've, we've thought about these last three weeks are, are, are issues of where there is great pain Um, uh, much fear Um, and how we long that uh, your gospel uh, your gospel that brings uh, safety, security uh, that brings hope um, would would press those things into our own lives um, and through us uh, into the lives of those who who don't have such a hope Um, uh, because we know how badly we all uh, need uh, your great love for us Uh, We praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.